Well, what is prayer? Hopefully we've learned a lot about that over the, over the years as disciples of Christ in our personal conversations with the Lord, both speaking to Him, listening to Him, and hopefully we've learned a lot over the last few months. I think this is week 22 in our Powerful Prayer series, and we have looked at a lot of different prayers. Uh, tonight will be interesting because we're going to look at a couple of fictional prayers in a parable that Jesus told. Now, sometimes as you kind of walk through the Gospels and look at these encounters of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, um, the writer of the Gospels gives you a very clear context for what you are about to hear. And in Matthew chat or in Luke rather chapter 18, we have one of those moments where Luke gives us a very clear context for what we're going to hear, and that makes it a lot easier. Jesus isn't just like speaking out into the air. We have, okay, we know what's going on before, we know what's going on after, and it makes perfect sense what Jesus was saying. So Jesus in Luke 18 is going to tell a parable, okay? A parable is a fictional story. Uh, it has a non-fictional meaning or application, so it is a story that, uh, that you might uh, create, a fable that you might create, um, but the moral of the story, the point of the story is not fictional at all. It is something that we really need to hear. In this case, it is a story about prayer. Uh, and the context is clear. Jesus is telling this particular story to a group of people who... who kind of consider themselves to be lettermen on God's team. Do they still have letter jackets these days? I don't know. But they consider themselves to be play, the starting five on God's varsity team. Um, they were a group uh, who felt, really, they felt very good about themselves in terms of their morality, their conduct, and in terms of their knowledge of Scripture and their obedience to Scripture. And honestly, they did know a lot of Scripture, and they did a pretty good job of following the Word of God. Here goes the story. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And this is from the NIV. So here he tells us who the story is being told to. Listen to this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness... And look down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable, this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. And one, the other one, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
So tax collector, we've talked about that in our series, the Unlocked series, when we talked about Levi a few weeks ago. It is essentially shorthand for sinner. It is crack dealer. Um, It is someone who you would hear, he's a tax collector. You would automatically, without needing to know anything else, know bad person. Just a all-around bad person. And in Luke's gospel, as I mentioned, Jesus has already had um, interactions, very personal interactions, including going and breaking bread at a tax collector's house, Levi, a.k.a. Matthew, up around Capernaum. And this caused quite a stir. In fact, if you remember that story, the Pharisees saw this going on. Jesus in the middle of this party at Levi's house, the tax collector's house, with Levi's friends, other tax collectors and and people of ill repute. And the Pharisees essentially said to the disciples, why does your rabbi, why does your master break bread with scum like Levi. They weren't even asking Jesus, but you remember Jesus turns to them and says, it's not the people who are well who need a doctor, it's, it's the sick who need a doctor. So, not only does he break bread in Matthew's house, remember? <laughs> he invites him to be one of the twelve, one of the apostles, one of the leaders in this movement, this kingdom of God movement that he is launching. So that's earlier in in the Gospel of Luke. The chapter after this parable of the Pharisee and the publican is chapter 19, and Jesus will invite himself over to whose house? Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus, I'm going to have lunch at your place today. So he is very intentionally rubbing elbows with, having meals with, inviting into his ministry these kinds of people, tax collectors and people like the tax collectors. So he spent a good time, a good deal of time with folks who were considered by the first century moral majority uh, people to be just generally bad people. Tax collectors were to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law, the equivalent of something you might scrape off the bottom of your shoe and say, ugh, that's what tax collectors were to these people. They occupied the moral bottom rung of society. Okay? Why? Well, we've talked about this before, and you probably have a pretty good idea. A, they worked for Rome. The publicani were part of the Roman government or were contracted by the Roman government for the collection of taxes. Rome was the enemy, the occupying power, the foreign power uh, who was dominating um, Israel at that time. And tax collectors worked for them. B, they took more money than they were supposed to take, right? You say you owe uh, $10,000 in taxes, they're going to try to get you for $22,000 in taxes. Why, you might think, would you pay them that money when you know they're asking too much? They could put you in jail. They could have you tortured by the Romans if you did not pay. Okay, so there's that. Um, the third thing, uh, reason that, uh, yeah, so the final reason they were not really liked was... Um, 
man, they made off like bandits. They were, <laughs> they were rich. They were rich people. You know Zacchaeus is rich. I mean, he talks about all the money, essentially, in chapter 19 that he has extorted and how he's going to return those monies uh, threefold. You know Levi was rich, rich enough to have a home big enough to host this huge party, big enough to, put, to buy food and drink for this party as well. So, yeah, so just kind of to add insult to injury, not only were they extorting money and having people tortured and thrown into prison who wouldn't pay them the money they demanded, but they were doing great off of it as well. So not hard to imagine why the publicans or the tax collectors were, were just loathed by a lot of people in first century society, Jewish people. And now Jesus has already got himself into a good deal of trouble uh, just by talking with tax collectors, we know up to this point, spending time with them. Uh, for the Pharisees, this was essentially, no matter what Jesus did, okay, miracles, teaching, didn't matter. The fact that he was rubbing shoulders with tax collectors, that in and of itself, independent evidence, he was not a prophet. He was not from God. A man from God, a prophet of God, would not be spending time with people like Levi and Zacchaeus. He would know better than that. So that was enough for them. Um, no one who was really close to God would have, who, who really grasped the holiness of God, the holiness of his word, no one who understood that would be hanging out with tax collectors. Okay? So Jesus <laughs> tells this parable, Luke tells us, to a group of people who were quite confident that in God's holiness power ranking, they were ranked quite high. Five-star recruits for the kingdom of God right here. Uh, way, way, way above in God's eyes people like the tax collectors. Pharisees were into the measurables. I like measurables. I like things that we can count. I like things that we can quantify. They help us judge our success in virtually any area of life. The Pharisees were into the measurables, the religious measurables. If you could count it, if you could number it, if you could check it off a list, they knew what it was, and they were, honestly, they were pretty good at, at accomplishing those things, at, at making sure those, those boxes got checked. So simple math in their estimation, simple math said that they were doing quite well compared to other people in terms of their um, spiritual life, in terms of their religious devotion. So, <laughs> the parable about these two fellows who are going to Jerusalem up to the temple, Mount Zion, to pray. The temple you know, is the center of the Jewish universe, the temple. Uh, in fact, it, it still is today, although the temple is not still there. The temple mount is still there, and it is still, to this day, the center of the Jewish universe. I mean, it, it is the supreme place on planet Earth to 
pray. It was then, it is today. If you've been there, you know what it's like. I mean, they go up there and they line up to go to that western wall, the wailing wall, and pray, even put their prayers, write them on paper, and put them into cracks in the wall because there's just something about praying there at the temple, at the site of the ancient temple or in the first century, at the actual temple. There's something about praying there. It makes you feel a little bit closer to God. It's not a long-distance call when you pray at the temple. So, um, that's the parable. They go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, um, we might suppose, always goes up to the temple to pray. Um, the four times a day when the Jewish folks were supposed to pray, he would have been there for those appointed hours of prayer, uh, moving to his Usual spot there in the middle of the courtyard gets into his posture of prayer. Jesus tells us his posture of prayer. He's not down on his knees. He's not looking down at the ground. His posture of prayer is standing up, head on a swivel, evaluating the other people that have come to pray. That's his posture of prayer. And it doesn't seem to be one where he is like gazing into heaven or thinking about God. Of course, the NIV tells us he's going to pray about himself. Other translations will say he is, he is praying to himself. Um, but he is, as he's talking to God, his eyes are skimming the crowds around him, appraising the worthiness or better said unworthiness of the others who have come to pray like him. Those poor, wretched sinners. He finds perhaps some twisted pleasure or satisfaction in these appraisals that he makes of the other folks who are there to pray. And we see that, or we hear that, in the words of the story that Jesus tells us. Thank you, God, that I am not like these other people Thieves, evildoers, adulterers, or like that guy over there, the tax collector. I mean, honestly, you can, almost, you can almost hear the wheels turning up there. What is a guy like that even, what does he even think he's doing here? He doesn't belong here. He doesn't belong at the temple. You know me, God. I fast twice a week, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you have ever fasted before, and I assume probably a lot of you have fasted before, I know I have, if you fasted before, fasting twice a week, I'm kind of impressed. Um, if that's a regular thing he's doing, man, fasting one day a week is hard enough. Fasting twice a week... He says, I give a tenth of everything I get. So not just talking about money, not just talking about salary. Anything he gets, he makes sure that God gets a tenth of it back. In fact, we see in another story in Jesus' ministry, even to spices and things. They would give a tenth of their cumin or a tenth of their, you know, whatever, back to God. Tithing on everything. You can count that, right? You can quantify that. So it's, it's one of those that made him feel real good. And the NIV does say that he's praying about himself. Um, he certainly does. Just the words of the prayer seem to be more centered on himself than on God. It is a, it is a self-congratulating, self-promoting, self 
righteous kind of prayer. It is a proud prayer, isn't it? Jesus tells us also at the end of the story that his prayer was ineffective. Ineffective. One of those two went home justified. It, it, It wasn't him. It wasn't him. And then there's the other one, right? The publican, the tax collector. As he approaches the temple area, you imagine perhaps his steps growing timid, very self-conscious, doesn't feel like he belongs here, feels the gaze perhaps of someone like the Pharisee over there, and recognizes his unworthiness to even be standing in a place like this, there at the temple of God. His eyes, we are told by Jesus, are locked onto the ground, will not dare to look up to the heavens. And you can imagine him moving not toward the center of the courtyard, but perhaps to the periphery somewhere, maybe in the shadows of the colonnade, Tears welling up in his eyes, shoulders kind of drooping. And his prayer to God just comes from this place of brokenness, contrite heart. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're told, by the way, by Jesus, that's a powerful prayer. Um, He went away justified. Very simple prayer. God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And while the Pharisee is pridefully aware of his religious pedigree, uh, his resume of accomplishments and knowledge and tithing and all of that stuff, this guy is just as as aware of of his sinfulness. He knows them. He feels... The weight, he feels the sensation of separation that he has created between himself and God as he has erected much like the, the western wall there in Jerusalem of gigantic boulders. He has he is erected with his sins this wall of separation between himself and the holy creator God of the universe. And so Jesus... Jesus lets us know that God is watching this. He sees the tax collector slumped in the shadows, and his heart is moved by the humility of this petitioner, and mercy and grace flow from God into the tax collector's heart. That prayer is a powerful prayer. God, have mercy on me a sinner. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus tells us the prayer is effective in verse 14. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other man, went home justified before God. Justified. Just means made right before God. Debts canceled set right. You see, our relationship with God, it is not founded on righteous acts. It is not founded on our 
measurables, on our morality, on our ability to follow some magic formula, our relationship with God is founded on His mercy. On His mercy. Mercy is not deserved, okay? Mercy means you really did something wrong, and you're asking, I need forgiveness for that. Yes. I need mercy. I don't need justice. Abraham Lincoln was, was a wise man and a wise leader. And there's a quote of his which reminds me of this parable. He once wrote about the country. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. So this mercy that we cry out to God for, we can ask for with confidence. And it is not a confidence that comes from ourselves because, hey, God, look at all the stuff I did. You know, I'm a tither, and, you know, God, I did this thing. I served in this uh, service project the other day and helped these people. Um, It's not that. It's based on our confidence in Jesus Christ. And there is a confidence. There is a boldness there. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. This is from the New Living. It says, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So, quickly, we won't get into all of this, but Paul does a lot in his writing to the different churches around the the ancient world. He does a lot to kind of expose, or not expose really, but to teach us about the foundations, the underpinnings of, of this, of this mercy, of this access that we have to God to paint for us a pretty accurate picture of who I am without Jesus, who I am because of the cross. One of those places, there are a lot of places, I mean, Ephesians 2 would be a great place to see that, but one of them is in Romans chapter 3. And so let's just read together verses 20 to 26. Paul writes, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So just a pause there. So Paul is affirming even today, even after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he is affirming the law has value. Okay? The law has value. It does a really good job of stripping away the pretense, of stripping away the pride, of revealing just what a desperate sinner I am. I mean, you don't even have to go through the law of Moses. You can just go to the Ten Commandments. And you can work through one commandment after another. And you will probably see that you're not even coming close. Bearing false witness... How many have done that? Again, no show of hands. You've done that. You've lied. You've you've deceived. You've been dishonest. Taking something that's not yours, thou shalt not steal. You've done that. 
And Jesus, of course, even broadens the adultery and the, and the murder in the New Testament to include looking lustfully upon a woman, uh, murder, thinking hateful thoughts, or calling Raka your, to your brother, calling him an idiot, that that is essentially the same thing. So we are lawbreakers, and even just a cursory look at the top ten, the Ten Commandments, reveals that to us. So Paul says in Romans 3, law does a really good job. It doesn't save anybody, okay? Obedience to the law doesn't get you saved, but it will reveal your need to be saved. Verse, uh, the next verse there. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So they're pointing to this. Okay? They're not revealing it, but they're pointing to it. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. I think about that parable right here. I think about the Pharisee. I think about the publican. I think about everybody in between. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, there's the word again, justified, justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this. So we're talking about the cross here. He did this to demonstrate that uh, to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So the cross reveals to us the seriousness of our sins. I mean, it took that to bring forgiveness to us the death of God's Holy One, the, get, the death of Jesus Christ. That's how serious our sin is. It demonstrates God's justice, okay? It'd be a whole different thing, wouldn't it, if God just, you know, you guys are a bunch of reprobate sinners, but wink, wink, we'll let it go. It's all right. He can't do that. He's a holy God. He's a perfect God. No judge, whether Dallas County or the Supreme Court of the United States, no judge would be a just judge if they just kind of winked <laughs> at disobedience and law-breaking. And God is far above any human judge, of course. And so it, sin had to be punished, had to be set right. And it happened through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, not through our righteous acts, not through our obedience to the law. We have been set right. We have been forgiven, justified, through our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. So back to the parable that Jesus told. The Pharisee prayed. The tax collector prayed. But only one was made right with God. Only one was justified. Now remember the Pharisee and his prayer. Let me ask you a question about his prayer. Did he ever actually ask God to make him right? <laughs> Did he ever at any point in his prayer acknowledge that he thought he even needed to be made right? No. No. 
Well, I guess you could say yes and no. Uh, no, he didn't think he needed to be made right by God. Um, yes, he thought he was made right by himself. By look at, look at all the stuff I've done. So yes and no, I suppose. Thought he was doing a pretty good job on his own of the whole righteousness thing. Um, so no, he didn't think he needed any help with that. Um, I mean, he said, thank you, God, that I'm not like the other people. Uh, verse 11, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Basically, basically, dear Lord, I think I've got this. I, I think I'm good. Um, so he thought he was right without any help from, from the Lord. Boy, was he wrong. If it's up to me, if it's up to us to get ourselves right, to get ourselves pulled up into a place of justification, then we are all in really big trouble. As Paul wrote, our faith our trust, it's not in ourselves, right? It's in the redemption that we have in Christ. Our faith is in the atonement He brought us through His sacrifice on the cross. So, when I pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, the cross of Jesus Christ reminds me that He knowing that I was a sinner, that I am a sinner, that He has already taken provisions to cover me with His mercy to make me right with Him. But the confidence, and there is a, there is a certain confidence there, the confidence that we have in Christ should stir in us not a... Pride, this is the interesting thing about this confidence. Not a pride, but a humility, right? The confidence that we have in what Jesus did for us brings us to a place of quivering knees, a grateful recognition that our sin problem has been dealt with in a merciful way, but a very costly way. Let's pray together as we finish out our time. Lord God, we come tonight with that same prayer. God, have mercy on us, a bunch of sinners. We know that without the blood of Jesus, without that intercession without the fact that He put Himself in the middle and took our sins on His back, that we are lost. But because of that sacrifice, because of that gift, we enjoy His grace, we enjoy the certainty of mercy, and we are thankful for that, we celebrate that, that gives us great joy, that gives us great freedom. And God, I pray that You will shape us into a people who will be holier, who will strive to, to do great things for you. 
to live in ways that honor you, to build relationships that honor you, to be a light in the world, in our city and beyond, to bring glory to you, that we will do more because of the fact that we know we've been saved by grace, that we've been saved by your mercy, that we will do more, not less. That that will be a fuel that drives us onward, gratefully, humbly onward. And so tonight we say thank you. Tonight we say we love you. Thank you for the mercy that you have on us sinners. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's be standing together and let's sing.